0: Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us are seated. My name's Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace. Um, I'm actually not going to be the one preaching this morning. Michael Matthias is going to be. Uh, so Michael Matthias is an elder here, and he I asked him to preach, and I said, Mike, I, you know, we're in a series uh, where we're looking at psalms and we're looking at the statements of Jesus, and I'd love for you to preach on a psalm. And he said, why? I've never done this before. Uh, and the reason why I asked um, Mike to preach is because... I think that Michael embodies much of what uh, the prayers and the spirituality of the psalms reflect, and so I am grateful that you are going to be sharing with us, and um, I'm grateful that we have a community of various voices through whom God can speak to us, so thank you, Michael. It's all yours.
1: Daniel, that was very nice. Thank you. Well, probably the first question to get out of the way is, what happened to my arm? (laughs) Um, there's a picture up there, and you can see that nice little S-crack. Um, I snapped it playing goalie uh, in a soccer pickup game. And I don't play goalie. I'm actually am actually a horrible goalie, which is evidenced by the fact that this is actually the second time I've broken my left wrist playing goalie in a pickup game. <laughs> yes, I know. I should probably pass on the goalie rotation next time. Definitely. Well, as, you can, as you can see, we're going through a series called Life and God. And we're exploring um, seven psalms and seven statements. Uh, we've been looking at how these might apply to our lives, um, the I am statements um, um, in, the, in the Gospels. But what I'm going to focus on is uh, Psalm 63. Um, and this morning I just wanted to start with a question. It is a question I think is actually quite direct and vulnerable, but nonetheless felt like it needed to, to start with. How many of you have ever wanted God so much, that you would do anything to be with him. You desired him so much, you would do whatever it took to get close to him. This is the question that actually emerged for me in Psalm 63. And but this is not the first time I felt the Lord has posed this question to me. Um, the question actually was much more personal and intimate, and it was: do you love me or desire me more than anything else, Mike? And this question actually emerged back in March and April. I was spending some time meditating in Philippians 3, uh, actually 2 and 3, but specifically in 3, you'll see in Paul references what he has claimed confidence in, what he can boast in, and he has quite a long list. And then he will um, say what that means uh, in regards to Christ. Well, what I did is in a a March 7th journal entry, I, I swapped out what Paul had said, and I put my own list in there. And I just wanted to read it to you this morning. I put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. I have confidence in the flesh, born to strong Christian parents, raised in the church, close Christian friends, financially stable, went to a Christian college, graduated from seminary, married into a strong Christian family, have abundance of assets, have a good reputation among my peers at work and in my community at church. An elder. I married my best friend. I have four beautiful children. An American born into middle class life. And I could go on. But Paul, after his list, this is what he says. And I wrote this as well. But whatever gain I had, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And as I read Paul's, his account, and as I thought of my, my own account, I realized there was actually quite a large gap when I considered Paul's desire and my desire for Christ It really quite unsettled me There was a, a, a disorientation About what, what does that mean? <laughs> and the question I asked is Did I really want Jesus that much? Like the way that Paul stated it And I think Paul invites us uh, He says later in that chapter He says Let those who are mature imitate me Or let those who are mature think this way and then this verse later, join in, 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 sorry, in, in imitating me. And I think Paul wants us to be very aware that everything, our desires, our affections, our will, our mind, everything should ultimately center on one thing, knowing Christ. And as I was thinking, of what, the, what is this knowing that Paul might be referring to? And it struck me, it's a, it seems like it's this lifelong, all-consuming pursuit to align our hearts with God will want what God wants. We'll do anything for him as a lover does for his beloved. Well, in Psalm 63, I think David speaks of similar longings and a similar desperation. A.W. Tozer makes this similar connection. David's life was a torrent of spiritual desire. His psalms ring with the cry of the seeker and the glad shout of the finder. Paul confessed the mainspring of his life was to be the burning desire of Christ, after Christ, that I may know him was the goal of his heart, and to this he sacrificed everything. Psalm 63 is a meditation and a prayer that for many of us, I think we, we can pray that. It, it, it calls and, and it, it draws us. But I think this language I think invites us to more. I think we realize that. Maybe we can't formulate these, these, these cries of our heart. We don't even have it within us. It almost feels foreign to say it. But I think, um, as we've talked about the Psalms, the Psalms invite us to come honestly, to come open, and to come willing for what they have to invite us to, pray, to prayer. I love what Thomas Merton says about the Psalms. He says, they must lead us into the hidden sanctuary of God for where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So this morning I'm going to share a few observations from Psalm 63 and then share how this might apply to us and our church body and our family. If you can open to Psalm 63, that would be great. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible underneath your seat and it's found on page 479. Obviously, if you guys have it on your um, phones or iPads, that would be great as well. So, if you're there, um, you'll see right away there's a note at the top. It says, "A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judea." And I think this note says everything. It really frames and gives us context for the rest of David's words. If you know anything about the life of David, um, for the first 30 years of his life, he spent much of his his life in the wilderness. He was the youngest of six brothers, and he seemed to be the one, maybe because he was the last, to be in charge of Shepherding the flock, the family flock. And it says that he fought off lions and bears. And then later he would be anointed by Samuel to be king. And the current king Saul would be jealous and seek his life. And David would have to flee again to the wilderness for years. Saul would chase him and pursue him until he became king. So we see in David, for the first 30, about 30 years of his life, he was very well acquainted with the wilderness. It was a place, first, I think, of refuge. It was a place that he fled to. It was a place of um, stripping, where that everything was, was taken from him, um, where he was dependent on God for everything. You'll see up here, there's a picture of the Judean wilderness. As you can see, there's not a lot there. <laughs> it's pretty barren. Um, it doesn't seem like it has the beauty of our deserts, just kind of a lot of nothing. Nothing. Um, This wilderness, it's actually quite amazing. If you look on a map, you'll see there's Jerusalem, and then just to the right of it on the map, it's all wilderness to the Jordan. So um, this is where a lot of uh, the test uh, where David goes when he goes to uh, flee from Saul is into the same wilderness. However, the commentaries I looked at, this is he's not fleeing from Saul in in this psalm, which I had actually assumed as well. But he is fleeing. He's fleeing from his son Absalom, and this is actually towards the end of David's life. And it's really quite tragic. His son Absalom had basically wooed the kingdom to himself. And so in Hebron, about a couple miles to the, to the west of Jerusalem, he had declared himself king and was coming to kill his dad with about 200 horsemen. And so David flees to the west, I mean to the east, into the wilderness with a few band of faithful followers, assuming that maybe his life was going to end. And I think so, as he's going through this wilderness, he goes through this and then down to the Jordan River, and it says he stops by the Jordan, and he's weary, he's thirsty, and he's hungry. And I imagine probably pretty tired. Um, so let us take a look at what the psalm says as David is there in the wilderness. So I think first, when you look at the, at psalm at, at the beginning of the psalm, I would expect something different from these circumstances, wouldn't you? I think... Uh, in our day and age, I think, I think, and even looking at the psalms, we have a lot of songs of lament. But he doesn't turn to lament. He doesn't turn to crying out to God, where are you? Why is this happening? Instead, we have a, a really intimate statement of longing and desire. And it starts very simply, God, you are my God. And I think we might also insert, and there is no other. Right, out, right, out of the, right off he starts and says, you are you are god over everything no matter what i see in my circumstance he then goes on to state three times and this is i think where a lot of us resonate with he says earnestly i seek you my soul thirsts for you my body faints for you and as i think there's this my kind of mirroring of of the wilderness with his own heart and he's as if looking around he says as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So first, I think in the wilderness, with David, all desires fade away. He desires one thing: God alone. I don't know if you noticed the word earnestly," but it seemed to just jump off the page. It's the, it says it means basically, intensely, seriously, with sincere conviction. And I, for myself, when I hear David's longing for God, I actually get quite uncomfortable. Um, I think, I don't know for you, but I think because the language to me is a language that we don't use very often. It's a language of abandon. Complete and utter giving oneself to something. Of, of, of dependency. And actually, back in college, I was thinking back to when I, I actually had this phase where I was really critical of certain worship songs. That if they, if they sounded like a love song, that you know you could swap the worship song out and it sounded like you were singing to your girlfriend or something and And I remember there was a, a psalm from uh from the from the vineyard and it said i'm desperate for you And i'm lost without you and I thought I just really can't get into this like it just seems So over the top. I mean obviously somebody coined this and somebody felt this but I, every time I come to this It just I, I don't have it. I not I don't feel lost. I'm not desperate and so I think maybe, I don't know if any of you resonate with that, but I do think there are times when we, when we find the, the fusive language of, of the psalms, or, and especially this psalm, to feel like they don't, they don't resonate. But however, I think this is wonderful, because I think David gives us permission that they can be like that. <laughs> and I, I, I'm glad I didn't stay there when I, when I considered that's how we would worship, or how I should worship. David's language is desperate language. It is intimate, and it's all-consuming. And it's really, I think that's why we're drawn to this psalm. Because what it does is it, is it kind of opens our heart. It, we realize, wow, somebody wants God. And that is very compelling. Or maybe I want to want God, and, I, and these are the things in my heart. Or even better, this is how I am right now. I am in such a place that this actually articulates everything that's within me. I, my body faints for you. My body, my, my soul longs for you. Second, we see in the wilderness, David remembers God's presence and character, which reorients him to worship. We see in verse 2, it says, So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now, we don't have, like, um, the same sort of worship service as they have. They actually, their worship was actually bringing animals into the, into the tabernacle. They didn't have the temple at the time. Sol- Solomon hadn't built it, so it was a tabernacle, it was in a tent, and they were bringing these animals for worship. And I was trying to imagine how I, how I would see that as worship. But David, it was, it was, he said he saw the power and glory of God when he came and presented his, his offerings in the tabernacle. I love how the Common English Bible states it. It says, yes, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have seen your power and glory. So for David, this wasn't just a fulfilling of the law. This wasn't just going through routine. He, he expected and did meet with God when he was in the tabernacle. And so I think as David's in the wilderness, he's remembering this. He's remembering, no, you are real. I saw it. I know you are the living God. And yet everything around me, I can't see it, but I remember that when I was in that temple, I saw your power and glory, and it is real. Third, in, in the wilderness, God's steadfast love was greater than the value of his own life. If you read three and four, I think it's a phrase we we love. It says, Because your steadfast love is better than life. Such a wonderful phrase. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. David compares his own life for the the love of God. I think it's interesting his love is on the line and everybody with him, and he knows he probably might die, that that Absalom is rallying the troops and will probably come hunt him in the wilderness and destroy their small band. And yet he says, for me, it is the most valuable and the most wonderful thing and precious thing to have, even in my own life. If I die, I am beloved by God, and it is wonderful. And that's astounding to me. And I just think, oh, that we would know that love. And he didn't even have Jesus. He didn't have the revelation of what God's story was, what plan was in store, and yet he knew that this love was available to him in Yahweh. Praise and blessing flowed from his mouth. Even when everything was lost, he knew he was beloved by God. It's it's an amazing phrase to me. Your steadfast love is better than life. For in the wilderness... David was satisfied in God It was his susten- God was his sustenance And food It wasn't just a, a mere ration It wasn't even like manna It would be in the desert It was food to linger And enjoy and to sit with We see in 5-7 verses It says My soul will be satisfied with fat And with rich food And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips When I remember you upon my bed And meditate on you In the watches of the night For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. What a picture. David is satiated in God. He's content, fully content in God in this situation. Well, I love it. My my father-in-law loves food. And what's wonderful about this is he loves sharing that food as well, and blessing uh, us with food. Um, I love food as well, and I know many do as well. Um, But he... He, once a year, takes his sons and sons-in-laws out to to, um, a restaurant once a year. And it's usually a place with only really good meat. And only meat. (laughs) (laughs) So this year we went to a Korean barbecue, and I had probably over a dozen different types of meat. And to say the least, I was more than satiated and more than full. I was probably stuffed. But you get the picture. There's There's this point at which... All of us have had a meal around either with people we love, but we're satiated, we're full, we're content. There isn't nothing gnawing at us. We're comfortable and at rest when we're full and content. We're not looking for anything else. What do we do after a meal? We go sit down and we relax after a meal. So I just think with, um, we see in David this, this wonderful contentment and joy. That surprises. I think you're going to continue to find this is surprising in the psalm with David. Is that if you continue to remember his his circumstance, there's nothing that should bring bring this about in his life, and yet he remembers and is f- full with God. And one of the ways I think he did this was, it says just just right after he says he goes and remembers and meditates God, med- meditates on God on his bed, not just in the morning, not the, at lunch, but in the middle of the night. And I, I stopped to think about that. I actually got woken up this week in the middle of the night, around two or three in the morning, and um, I was really struck by the utter silence of my neighborhood. I live in a pretty dense area, and our windows are open because we don't have AC, and I couldn't hear a thing. And it was actually a little bit eerie because I just kind of expect there to be a lot of noise in the city. But here's David. He's laying in the wilderness on his bed, maybe looking up at the stars. Maybe he's in his tent. And he's, he's meditating on God. That's where his source was. This was the point at which maybe all the clamor around him and all the chaos and maybe helping people, but this was his time to meditate. I think we have an indicator of what maybe he was thinking upon. He said, for you have been my help. And as I've already said, he's needed God's help in many ways while he's been in the wilderness. And I wondered if he had been meditating on those times when he was, when he was a boy or when he was running from Saul or when he was um, having to um, fight for God in, his, in the army. And I, you just see that all this, he continues to come back and point to, to Yahweh as his help, his protection, his security, and remembering his promises to him. We'll see in the wilderness, David didn't turn away from God. Rather, he turned to God and clung to him. He held, and God held him. In verse 8, David says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I thought that's such a a wonderful statement of dependency. Here, David says, I cling to God, but I know that I'm held by God. And I thought cling has this idea of of like desperation when you think of clinging. Like you can't get him off. Like he just will not be pulled away from God. Nothing will get in between him and God. He is holding tight. How many of you guys um, tube? I don't mean snow tubing, but have tubed behind a boat. It's, it's a very interesting way we, we, we can do fun things, you know? Being pulled behind a boat, going 35 miles an hour. And basically, the, the where you're tubing, they're trying to knock you off, the, basically knock you off the tube. You're going over, going over wakes, doing donuts, doing these wide turns, and you're holding on for dear life. And I think that's the idea of clinging, right? For dear life. Um, if you don't cling on in tubing, guess what your ride is about? is very short. But the longer you hold on, the longer you ride. But I do think clinging has this, this idea of that there's something that, that's at stake, isn't there? That if I let go of the tube, I'm instantaneously flying like a rag doll across the water. I don't really want to let go. But I also think there's, there's consequences too when we let go. And I just, I thought that, you know, there's, there's times where we come to God and we, we, for whatever reason, maybe we loosen up our grip. There could be um, pain, pain from a, a circumstance that really just said, this is too much, God, I, I don't know, I'm moving away. Or maybe it's more subtle, maybe it's, I, I just don't think about you anymore, I've, I've loosened my grip, you're not really that important, other things have placed, you've become more important. And I just, I just wondered if some of you need to hear that this morning, that God actually holds you. That maybe you feel like, man, I've, I'm clinging hard here. I'm doing a lot of work here. And Lord, where are you? I'm, I'm trying to stay in this. I'm really trying to be faithful. I'm really trying to, to see where you are, and I don't see it. And I think God's invitation if, is, to, is to keep clinging. Because there are, there are implications for not. And I and, um, And we see in David uh, just this beautiful picture that he clings to God as God holds on to him. Finally, we see in the wilderness, David trusted that God's goodness would triumph over sin, injustice, and evil in the world. In the final verses of this psalm, David declares his hope that those who sought his life would actually have their, their actions turned back upon them. He says... But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And if you know anything about David, this is actually not too strong a language for him. He gets more strong in other psalms about what he wants to have happen to his enemies. But I think what's more important with David is most often he is not the one doing it. He is not the one seeking out his enemy for vengeance. He is not the one bringing down curses upon them. He says, God is the one who will be my advocate. God is the one who will be the one who brings justice. And I think it's really easy for us in in, in our world to say, well, justice needs to happen. And I think David has this perspective realizing that God sees. It is not unseen by him. And this picture that um, and I was thinking of this in, from 2 Corinthians 2 or not 2 but 2 Corinthians as well There's, it says that good will be overcome, I mean sorry, evil will be overcome with good and I think this is the picture that David believes, this evil that was done for me, good will come out of it because God sees and knows so we've considered a little bit of what, what David how David, what was happening with, with David in this psalm and I, I was just thinking what, what, what does God have for us As we've listened to David's um, words and crying out to God. And actually, a picture of, or the image of the ocean came to mind. And that God is the ocean. And we were all standing on the shore. And some of us were ankle deep. Some of us were knee deep. Some of us were waist deep. But we were all kind of longing to dive deeper. We wanted to go further. But the fear, there was fear and there was uncertainty. And really the unknown of what would it mean to go into that ocean? And we, there was something else also at work. There was the shore. And what was the shore? The shore was this, was, was we know, it's known. It's solid. It's all we know. It's, it's, it's where we're coming from. It's where we have our comfort. And it's, and it's good, too. There's good things there. And I just had this picture of the, the ocean being this desirable place to go because God is there. But it's wild, It's exhilarating. It's vast. It's unexplored. It's all-encompassing. It's unfathomable in its depth and magnitude. And there were two other things that came to mind, what it might mean to dive into the ocean. What would it look like to dive into the ocean of God? Ted Decker uh, wrote a fantasy series called The Circle. And in this series, he basically creates a world. He's a Christian author, so he creates this world where it's mirrored to our, our, phys- our world. But instead, things like angels and demons and even God are real. And like sin is actually a disease on their body, and it's blindness. And so this world is, is mirrored, but it's all physical. And I think one of the more powerful images that, he, that I just had a hard time, not a hard time, it was actually good, but it's really stuck with me, And it was how conversion happened. And it was through drowning in the waters of Elyon, which was God. And when they go to the waters, they they literally have to go in knowing they're going to drown. But they don't know what's going to happen. They think they're going to die. But in the instant that the waters rush into their lungs, they come alive. And they start breathing new life. They can see the scales fall from their eyes from blindness. The disease leaves their body. And then there's joy. There's delight. And there's an awareness that there's this other who's amazing and they couldn't see it all and then they swim with him in the waters And I think there's this, it's an allusion to baptism, right? Christ going it, Christ went into the grave and we in the same way go under the water to die and come up What new creation and this is the same in, in, in his series is that as when they came out of the water? They were a new creation and everything had been made new and the other image was actually a song which has actually been a psalm for me this year. It's in over my head, and it's sung by Jen Johnson sorry, Jen Johnson of Bethel Worship. And I'll just read a short section of her of her song, and you'll hear echoes of Psalm 63. I've come to this place in my life, I'm full, but I've not satisfied this longing to have more of you. And I can feel it, and my heart is convinced I'm thirsty. My soul can't be quenched. You are—you already know this, but still, come and do whatever you want to. And further and further, my heart moves away from the shore. Whatever it looks like, whatever may come, I am yours. And then you crash over me. I've lost control, but I'm free. I think these three—these three images—and these, three images these uh, kind of tie together. And I—and it, it for me it says that David's song does not let us get comfortable with God. It does not ever settle to think we've, we understand him or what he's doing in our lives and around us. There's no arrival point. And I, I also think there's after death, I know there's this idea that we'll have more knowing, but I just wonder if God, there'll be this vast ocean of God who will lay unexplored before us for eternity. Us being the created, enjoying our creator. That just is a I can't get my mind around that, but I, that, that God is unfat you cannot plunge the depths of God. And yet, with this vastness, we are invited into intimacy. We're invited to come completely holy to God, and He will meet us. And we know this is possible because of what's before us, the bread and the cup, because of one person, Jesus Christ. He made the way to the Father through his life, death, and resurrection. He made known the Father, and then he made the way to the Father possible. And so in Jesus, we know that it's personal. We know that it's, it's, he's become like us. He's become one of us, so that we can know this, know this God who is unfathomable, who is beyond our understanding in all of his attributes towards us. I also feel like this psalm prompts some questions for us, and they were questions that came right to me as well. Um, what do you earnestly seek? What do you earnestly thirst for? What do you cling to? What satisfies the longings of your heart? So those are not easy questions, are they? Um, Those are soul-searching questions. But they're questions I've put to myself. But... What's wonderful is that God is with you in these questions. These are not questions you answer by yourself. And and even better, God wants to be the answer to those questions. And that's, that's even more amazing. I think God wants us to experience his love and power so much that we can do what David did. That when we're lost in the wilderness and everything is stripped away from us, we know that God is enough, and more than enough, and that he will meet us. Looking back at Paul, uh, we see in Philippians 3, um, after he declared everything lost, he actually has more to say about that, that desire. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even though he'd made Christ's whole pursuit a little bit earlier, he still acknowledges the pursuit didn't end. A bit like the ocean. But as David, Paul only wanted one thing, and he said, I'm, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to press constantly into this. And I just, I think many of you have tasted God and have seen God in this way, even if maybe it's for a brief moment. And I just wanted to encourage you that no no matter where you are in life, where where your season is, that this invitation is always there to go deeper. That we would realize and taste and see the goodness of God, that he has made us his own, and and that he is ready to meet with us at any time. I want to end with a quote and a prayer. This quote comes from St. Gregory of Nyssa, and he echoes Paul. Since the true sight of God consists in this, that the one who looks up to God never ceases that desire. This truly is the vision of God, never to be satisfied in the desire to see him. But one must always, by looking at what he can see, Rekindle his desire to see more. May we never be a people who are are never satisfied in the desire to see him. And I just wanted to end with this prayer. And I prayed this prayer before in the chapel. It's a prayer from A.W. Tozer. And I just wanted you guys to maybe open your hands um, as I pray, just in in an openness or a willingness or just a receptivity. O God, we have tasted thy goodness. It has both satisfied us and made us thirsty for more. We are painfully conscious of our need for further grace. We are ashamed of our lack of desire. O God, the triune God, we want to want thee. We long to be filled with longing. We thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show us thy glory we pray thee, so that we may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within us. Say to our souls, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give us grace to rise and follow thee up from these misty lowlands where we have wandered for so long. Amen.